0: السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من الشرور ونفسنا من سيئات من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له. ونشهد اله الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبركاته وسلامه تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد. اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد. Respect to listeners, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته We continue with the hadith of Hijrah related by Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha from Sahih al-Bukhari it's hadith number 3905, under the chapter heading Babu Hijrat nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ashabihi al madinah chapter of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's emigration and that of his companions to Medina, And it's under the main book, Kitabu Manaqib al-Ansar. The Book of the Virtues and the Merits of the Ansar Companions. It's a very long hadith and we stopped at a section where Umm al Aisha radiallahu anha relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Abu Bakr as-siddiq radiallahu anhum. They they left the cave of <coughs> thawr sorry, the the cave on Mount Thawr and they departed. This was Prophet sallallahu and, and Abu Bakr Siddiq had remained in the cave for three days and nights, and then they left. And upon leaving, the final words were. They had remained in there, and they had agreed that Abdullah ibn Abdullah ibn Urayqit, a non-Muslim guide and expert tracker, he would meet up with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam Abu Bakr Siddiq an and also Amir ibn Fuhaira, the freed, the freeman, a former slave whom Abu Bakr Siddiq an had purchased and then freed. So he was a freeman, the mowla of Abu Bakr as-siddiq So the two of them were still in the cave Amir ibn Fuhairah would pass by them each evening and spend the nights with them and so would his son Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr and then the two would depart, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and Abu Bakr as-siddiq would remain. Eventually at the end of the third day and night meaning on the fourth morning the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam Abu Bakr As-Siddiq radiyallahu left the cave and then along with Amir ibn Suhayrah his freeman and also Abdullah ibn Urayqit the expert guide and tracker the expert guide and tracker who was supposed to bring the Camels to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and Abu Bakr radhiyallahu anhu. He also arrived. So this group of four people left, and um, the final words were, "One, one طلق معهما." `Amir ibn Fuhaira to and `Amir ibn Fuhaira and the guide left with them. فأخذ بهم so the guide took them along the path of the coasts. What that sentence means is the Mughans had a standard route, the beaten track to the city of Medina. And obviously the Prophet wanted to avoid that route. So he, when initially departing from Makkah and going to Mount Thawr, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam left the city from the south. And people would always leave from the north uh, in order to go to Medina. So he left from the south. Approximately a few miles, some say five miles down further south, they took refuge in this cave on Mount Thawr. And then when they left, they (coughs) travelled westwards. And then, travelling at some distance, they took a north. They took the north route. So now, they were travelling in between Makkah al and the coast of the Red Sea. So they weren't actually in the coast, they weren't on the actual coast. But in the, in the coastal region to the west of Mecca, but not on the actual coast. And they travelled further up north, parallel to the coast of the Red Sea. And then, at some stage later on, they turned northeast. And in that way, they travelled onwards to Medina, eventually arriving at Uba. And we will learn more about that later on in the hadith. So they went south, westwards, and then up north. And since it was the coastal region, though not actually on the coast, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha says, بهم, The guide took them along Tariq al-Sawahil, the path of the coasts. The hadith continues. In some editions of Bukhari, the numbering, <coughs> this is considered an, the next hadith. It's a continuation of the same hadith, but because it's the Imam Bukhari alayhi, says, Qal ibn Shihab, Ibn Shihab says, so it's considered another sanad, another chain, as a result of which some editions of the Book of Sahih al Bukhari will have an extra number here. This explains the difference or the variation in many of the hadith, in the collections of hadith. It's very simple. The numbering is different depending on the manner of numbering. So often in the books of hadith you find the authors mentioning one hadith with the same text, with the, exactly the same text, preceded by three different chains of narration. So he says, my teacher narrates to me from his teacher, from his teacher. And then, again, my teacher narrates to me from his teacher, from his teacher, from his teacher. My other teacher narrates to me from his teacher. And then eventually the chains merge at the upper end of the chain. Now, some people will regard the same hadith with the three different chains as... One single hadith and number it accordingly. Others will regard the same hadith with three different chains as three separate hadith. So here too, we started off with 3,905. Now here Imam Bukhari mentions part of the chain again. Not the full chain from him, but he more or less mentions part of the same chain again. As a result of which, some of the books will have an additional numbering here. So, 3906. But it's a continuation of the same hadith of Umm al-Mu'minin Aisha. Qala ibn Shihabin, ibn Shihab says, ibn Shihab zuhri was one of the most pivotal narrators of hadith. As I've explained before, he died in 124 Hijri. He was a teacher of many scholars, including Imam Malik ibn Anas, rahmahullah, and he was highly regarded one of the most pivotal narrators of hadith. So Qal ibn ibn shihab says, وَأَخْبَرْنِي عَبْدُ الرَّحْمَانِ إِبْنُ مَالِكِ النِّ الْمُدْلِجِيُ عَبْدُ الرحمن إِبْنُ مَالِكِ المدلجي informed, informed me. وَهُوَ ابن أَخْيِ سُرَاقَةَ ibn مَالِكِ ibn And he is the nephew of Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jushim. أَنَّ Abahu, that his father informed him And then we now have the body of the actual hadith. Since my purpose is not just to discuss the hadith of Hijrah or the event of Hijrah, but rather to comment on the actual hadith from Sahih al-Bukhari, let me explain uh, these two lines for the benefit of uh, students of ilm and especially the talabatul ilm who are studying hadith who will study hadith Ibn shihab says that Abdul Rahman ibn Malik al-Mudliji informed me and he and he was the nephew of Suraqat ibn Malik ibn and he says that his father informed him that Suraqat ibn Jarshum said. So we have a number of people here, and some of the names are actually missing, which can lead to confusion. So allow me to explain. The main individual, or the main character of this following story is Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jarshum, from the tribe of Banu Mudlij. So Suraqah the son of Malik, the son of Ju'ashim. And then in the beginning part of the hadith it says, Abdurrahman Rahman ibn Malik ibn Jarsham. The Abdurrahman, Rahman, the son of Malik, the son of Jarsham. Wahu Akhi Suraqt ibn Malik, and he is a nephew of Suraq ibn Malik. If you look at it, Jarsham is a grandfather. Malik is the son, Malik ibn Jarsham. And Suraq is the grandson of Jarsham and the son of Malik. And at the beginning of the hadith it says, Rahman, the son of Malik, the son of Josham. Well, it just says, Rahman, the son of Malik. So, this would make Abdurrahman the brother of Suraqah, not his nephew. Since the, it says, Abdul Rahman ibn Malik informed me. And he is the nephew of Suraqat ibn Malik. Suraqah, the son of Malik. So that makes them both brothers. They're both the sons of Malik. And then later, he says that Suraqat ibn Jusham informed him. So the name Malik has been dropped. Now, this may sound confusing, but well, what it is, the arrows were very familiar with their lineage, with their with the names of their families. They were very particular about this. And the truth is, one cannot understand the seerah or even the lives of the sahaba, رضي the without a good grasp of the tribes, the clans, the names, the lineages, and the ancestry of the Arabs, and they were very particular about this. The Arabs even knew the ancestry of their animals, and this is no exaggeration. They knew the ancestry of their animals, so it's not of, it's not surprising at all that they were experts in the ancestry of their well in, in the ancestry of their forefathers. And they attach great pride and importance to this. And this is what they called hasab and nasab, lineage of honor, pedigree, ancestry. So since they were very familiar, at times what they would do is that they would refer to a person as being the son or the daughter of a parent. And again, something remarkable or something of note That the Arabs, they never had a tradition of married women taking on the name or adopting the name of their husbands or their families. Far from it. In Makkah, the women were considered to be dominated by the men. And in Medina, the women played a very prominent role. And they were considered to be dominant. Well... Uh, the men were regarded as being Dominated by the Men And Umar ibn al-Khattab anh, actually says that in the hadith That we the Quraysh, we the assembly of the Quraysh From Mecca, We were a people who Dominated our women but When we came to Medina we discovered a people Whose women dominated them And indeed the some of the women Of the Ansar were truly remarkable In fact The women played a great role In the early part of Islam, and this idea that women were always downtrodden and mere chattels and oppressed. Yes, you had, you had similar cases, as we have cases today too. So even in modern democracies, in modern developed countries, on the one hand we have evident examples of the liberation and the freedom of women. And their true status according to them, accorded to them. And yet, in the same sphere, in the same space, in the same countries, we also have evident examples of women being suppressed and exploited. So, I only mention that as a parallel to what existed in Arabia. You had both cases, you had examples of the suppression of women, and their subjugation and exploitation. And at the same time, you have examples of women being extremely prominent and powerful and influential and being very independent. In fact, that was quite common. Even in Makkah al-Mukarramah, even though they dominated the... Uh, Umar ibn khattab radiyallahu says, we were a people who dominated our women. Despite their domination, the women were very independent. You had poetesses amongst the women. And the men feared the poetry of the women. They really did. And one of the features of Arab life was that a woman was considered totally independent in her wealth, in her inheritance. Although there were cases of exploitation, she deserved, she had her right. Though there were cases where this wasn't honoured. But they were very independent, even in naming, even in identity. So women always, reta- a woman was called Aisha Bintu Abi Bakr, radiyallahu anha, anhumah. Of course in her case it was slightly different because unique for the Prophet wasallam that the w- The wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Would prefer to be known as Ummahatul Mu'mineen And that was a title given to them by Allah But despite that The ladies were always known by their family names By their parents In fact, even when they were married to Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam He was one of the enemies of the Prophet sallallahu until he embraced Islam in the eighth year of Hijrah at the conquest of Mecca. But his daughter Umm Habiba radiallahu anha whose name was Ramla, she was always known as Ramla to bintu Abi Sufyan, even though he was an enemy. And Huyay ibn Akhtab, the leader of Banu Nadir, he was actually executed. On the occasion of the Battle of the Trench... In al Khandaq... In the fifth year of Hijrah... Yet despite being... One of the chieftains of the enemy tribe... And someone who... Uh, was in battle with the Messenger... Sallallahu On more than one occasion... And then who was eventually executed... Despite that... His daughter Safiya... عنها, who married the Prophet... وسلم, two years after that incident... She was always referred to as bintu ibn Akhtar. So they retained the names of their families and of their fathers. And this is how they were always known. So the Arabs would normally refer to their parents, but sometimes they would remove the name of the parent and just simply refer themselves to the grandfather. And it would be so common, they would do this at times, they would do that at times. And for a people who knew their ancestry and their lineage, it was never a problem. So here as well, what's happened is, Abdurrahman, Ibn Malik, and Mudliji. He, he informs a narrator. that And he was the nephew of Suraqat, Ibn Malik, Ibn Jarsham, And then later, it says, Suraqat, Ibn Jarsham, So the Malik has been removed. So all that's... All, all that needs to be understood is we have Ju'shim, the grandfather, we have the son Malik. And the son Malik had two sons himself. One was Suraqah. And Suraqah's brother was called Al-Harith. And he hasn't been mentioned here at all. Al-Harith. And Al-Harith's son is Rahman. So the full Description should be, Imam Muhari, says, Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri says, that Abdul Rahman, the son of Al-Harith, the son of Malik, informed me, and he is the nephew of Suraqah ibn Malik ibn Jurashum that Suraqa, the son of Malik, the son of Jurashum, said. And I'll suffice with that. جاءنا رسل كفار قريش يَجَعْلُونَ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ أبي بَكْرٍ دِيَتَ كُلِّ وَاحِدٍ مِّنْهُمَا لِمَنْ قَتَلَهُ أَوْ أَسَرَهُ So بن مالك ibn Malik ibn الله عنه says that the messengers of the unbelievers of the Quraysh came to us Placing on the messenger of Allah sallallahu and Abu Bakr عنه, a bounty for each for each one of them. For whoever slays them or asrah or captures them alive. Now this is a reference to what happened after Abu Bakr and, uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi and Abu Bakr عنه, left the cave. They travelled westwards and up north in the coastal region, travelling parallel to the Red Sea coast. And on the journey, they had an encounter with Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jarsham. But before that happens, this is Umm al Mu'mineen Aisha anha relating from her perspective. There was another incident too before they met Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jarsham it's related elsewhere in Bukhari that Abu Bakr anhu himself relates this that the Prophet and he left the cave and they traveled for approximately one and a half days. And. or part of the day. And there, Abu Bakr anhu says, I was looking for some shade. Where we could rest and take refuge for a short while. So I found a very large boulder which had cast a long shade. So I went along with the Prophet wasallam, and I said to him, O oh Messenger of Allah, rest here. I will clean up the area. So I began brushing the area for the Prophet wasallam to lie down. And then Prophet slept. In the meantime, a young man, a young well, a boy, he came in our direction along with some goats. And he along with a flock. And he was obviously seeking what we were seeking, which is a shade. So when he arrived close, I said to him, Can you Give us some milk. So he said yes. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu says, I had brought along with me a container for the Prophet sallallahu to drink from and to do wudu from. So I said to the lad, brush and wipe the udder of the animal very carefully. And he did so and then Abu Bakr عنه, milked the animal and then he took the milk to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And he was still resting so he didn't disturb him and he waited with the milk. What this shows subhanallah is the, he was only two years younger, two years a few months younger. He was his best friend. And he was his father-in-law, because by this stage the nikah had been performed with Aisha radiallahu anha. And yet, despite being his best friend, his father-in-law, despite being only two years a few months younger, 51 years of age, despite all of that, See the humility and the love and devotion with which he presented himself to Rasulullah. It's remarkable. He could have just told a young lad, Milk the animal and take it to this man. But no, he acted as a servant to him, waiting upon him with such devotion and diligence, brushing the udder of the animal, having it clean thoroughly milking the animal, standing with it, with the milk, waiting for the Prophet وسلم, to wake up. And then he fed, and then he gave him to drink. And the words of the hadith are, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu says, I continue to give to the Prophet وسلم, until he drank, ورضيت, until I became content that now he is satiated. Until I was content, I continued to give him to drink. Then they both continued with their journey, and after they continued, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu carried on doing what he was doing before, glancing in all directions, furtively. Darting to one side to the other, going to the front to the back, always scanning the horizon. And therefore Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi manner of travelling was such that he would be reciting and looking ahead. He would not glance backwards. So Abu Bakr radiyallahu siddiq was the first to see someone coming their way. And that was Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Ju'ashim, as we will learn. He was from the tribe of Banu Mudlij. And the Banu Mudlij lived at some distance from Makkah. And their settlements were in that region through which Abu Bakr as Siddiq and the Prophet passed. And after their departure and the failure of the Quraysh to locate them, the Quraysh had become wild and frantic in their search. So they sent out search parties, they themselves travelled, they scaled the mountains, they even came up to the cave of Thawr. They were very close to capturing the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And when they returned to Mecca, they severely beat Ali ibn Abi Talib Radiyallahu. In fact, that was before when they captured him at the house. They beat him severely. They dragged him to the masjid. The Asma bint Abi Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu an when she uh, Abu Jahl went to the house. And he inquired, she opened the door, he asked her, where is your father? She said, I don't know. And he slapped her so hard. And she herself says that he was a khabith. He was a harsh, foul-tongued khabith individual. And he slapped me so hard that my earring flew off. What's remarkable is that these individuals who are the most, who are the bitterest and most implacable enemies of the Prophet ﷺ, their own family members eventually all embraced Islam and they became very sincere and devoted believers. All the enemies of the Prophet wasallam, members of their own family, embraced Islam. Even Abu Jahl's wife, his daughter, his son, his brothers, Ayyash ibn Abi Rabi, sanam ibn Hisham, his famous Ikrimat ibn Abi Jahl. And not only that, they all gave their lives in the way of Allah. Many of them became shaheed. So he slapped her so severely Her earring flew off And then the Quraysh became frantic In their frenzy And they sent messengers In all directions On the outskirts of Mecca And even further Searching for Rasulullah Abu Bakr عنه, And they even placed a bounty on their heads. And this is what then transpired. So Surah Qutb ibn Ju'ashim says, rusul, The messengers of the believers of the Quraysh came to us, placing on the messenger of Allah and Abu Bakr an, a bounty for each one of them. For whoever kills them or catches them. And the bounty was a hundred camels each. Because that was the Deed the compensation, the blood writ, the blood money in the event of someone being killed. fi only Bani So whilst I was seated in one of the gatherings of my people, the Banu Mudlij, and he was actually their leader, Akbala Rajulun minhu. A man from the meaning from my own people came, حتى قام and he until he came and stood over as when whilst we were seated. فقال يا so he said, "Oh Suraqah," and he doesn't explain in full here in this narration. But as I said, what had happened, the messengers had come and informed the Banu Mudlij that anyone who catches Muhammad and his companion will receive. A bounty for each one of them. Alive or dead or alive. So Suraqah says, I intended to win that bounty somehow. I didn't know how to do it, but I intended. So whilst we were just seated in the desert in their camp, along with, uh, in a gathering of my people, one of my own people came and stood over our gathering and said, addressing me, Oh Suraqah, I have just now seen some figures on the coast. أُرَاهَا Because there were four of them, Prophet Abu Bakr and his freeman Amir ibn Fuheira and Abdullah ibn Urayqid, the non-Muslim guide. So he says, أُرَاهَا wa I think they are Muhammad and his companions. قال سرقه سرقه said فَعَرَفْتُ أَنَّهُمْ هُمْ So I realized that it was them. فَقُلْتُ لَهُ So I said to him, dismissively, إِنَّهُمْ لَيْسُمْ بِهِمْ They are not them. وَلَكِنَّكَ رَأَيْتَ فُلَانًا وَفُلَانًا Rather you have just seen such and such a person, such and such a person, in who passed by just before our eyes. So he was trying to divert everyone's attention and deter them so that he could claim the prize for himself. So he quite simply lied. And he said that no, it's not them. And they are some other people who just passed by us right now, before our very eyes. Then I remained in the gathering for a short while. Then I rose for the khalt. and I entered his tent or whatever. فأمرت So I instructed my maid أن تخرج بِفَرَسٍ وهي من To bring out my horse which was behind a rise and a mound so as part of the features of the terrain in the desert a mound or a rise was known as akama so the rise was high enough for it to conceal the horse the horse was tied behind the mound or the rise so i told her to go and prepare my horse and hold on to it for me which was behind the rise or the mound فَتَحْبِسَهَا So that she may hold on to it for me. وَأَخَذْتُ And I took my spear. فَخَرَجْتُ مِنْ الْبَيْتِ So I then came out with it, carrying the spear from the rear of the house. Now it says house here, but the Arabs, this was in the desert, the Arabs, even in the Quran, uh, tents are referred to as buyut, as homes or houses. So I dragged the spearhead along the ground. And I lowered its upper part. Until I came to my horse. Why he did that is he had a long spear. The upper part is where a person holds the base of the shaft of the spear. So that's known as the upper part. The lower part is the spearhead. That's where the zudge is. That's the spearhead. So he said, I lowered the whole spear. And the actual spearhead, I let it drag on the ground. And even the upper part where I was holding it, I lowered that as well. He did that so that no one would see. It's mentioned in another narration. No one would realize that he is traveling with the spear and he has a certain intention Or any glint or gleam from the spear would attract anyone's attention. So he lowered the whole spear, holding it from uh, at waist height with his arms, the lower part, sorry, the upper part, the handle, and the spearhead was dragging along the ground. And I lowered its upper part until I came to my horse, and then I climbed, I mounted my horse. So I, rafatuha means I caused it to speed up, I, I sped it, فرفعتها, so I sped it, I raised it, i.e. in its gallop. تقرب galloping with me. The Arabs, like most things, had names for all kinds of things. So even in English we have that trot, gallop. Etc. But the Arabs had different names for every pace of travel, and toqri will be galloping with me. taqrib when it comes to a horse, is when the horse gallops so fast that at some point all four legs are above the ground. So when it's galloping, each t- at a lower pace. Slower pace it'll, it'll raise some legs And have the other legs on the ground But when it's really galloping And it bounds and leaps So when all four legs are off the ground That's actually called taqrib So they had a specific name for that as well So he said I raised the horse for rafatuhah I raised it in its speed Taqrib will be galloping with me in that manner Hatta danawtu minhum Until I came close to the meaning The party of Rasulullah Sallallahu alaihi wa sallam now, this is when Abu Bakr as Siddiq saw someone coming from the distance and he began weeping. He began weeping. Prophet, it's not mentioned here, it's in another narration. Prophet said to him, O oh Abu Bakr, why do you weep? He said, Ya Rasulullah, I do not weep for myself, but I weep for you. So the Prophet said, La tahzan, do not grieve. So Saraqat ibn Malik ibn Jashm says, حَتَّىٰ دَنَوْتُ Minhum UNTIL I CAME CLOSE TO THEM. فَعَثَرَتْ بِي So my horse stumbled with me. فَخَرَرَتْ عَنْهَا So I fell off it. فَقُمْتُ So I rose. فَأَهْوَيْتُ يَدِي إِلَا كِنَانَتِي I then stretched my hand to my quiver. Because when he left, when he left, he took his spear as well as his quiver. And in fact, what he did... It's mentioned here, but I'll explain it again. فَقُمْتُ So I rose, فَأَهْوَيْتُ يَدِي إِلَى And I stretched my hand to my quiver. فستخرجت الْأَزْلَامُ So I extracted from my quiver, there from, from my quiver, the arrows. الْأَزْلَامُ بِهَا Then I divined with them. أَدُرُّهُمْ Should I harm them or not? These were known as the arrows of divination. The Arabs, throughout history, people have always believed from every race, every nation, every culture, every religion. The whole of humanity has always accepted that our knowledge, our intelligence, our perceptions, our senses are limited. And there is something beyond the material world. There is something beyond our perception, our grasp. And throughout history, people have always accepted defeat in the face of a greater power. They've accepted their weakness, their inability. And as a result, what people would do is when they would come to a stage at which they would feel that our knowledge ceases, we now have to rely on a greater knowledge. Then they would resort to various things. So even the Greeks, the Romans, you had the oracle. And similar to the oracle were temples, And similar places all over the world where people would go specifically to seek guidance. And the manner of seeking guidance was different, but ultimately people reposed their faith and their trust in a higher power. To guide them, to assist them, to show them the way. And the Arabs, people would travel to soothsayers, fortune tellers. And the Arabs would do the same. They had their fortune tellers, their soothsayers, the kahana. And one of the methods for the Arabs of deciding what to do, determining what to do, and seeking guidance or enlightenment is was the method of divination. So sometimes they'd do it themselves, sometimes they'd go to a special soothsayer. So the soothsayers, would, some would look, well, the famous image of fortune teller is to look into the crystal ball, but the, or to read palms, or to read tea leaves, or the entrails, intestines of animals. But uh, one of the methods was the arrows of divination. So they would have arrows, and on the arrows would be written different things, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. So they had a collection of arrows. And sometimes they would go to someone who would do this for them, for a price. And sometimes they just do it themselves. So they would say, shall I travel for trade? So they pick arrows. And then they say, the arrows say yes, the arrows say no. So these were known as the arrows of divination and Islam. They're actually condemned in the Quran. And Allah mentions them. In the verse of alcohol and gambling, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu innama khamru wal maysir wal ansab wal azlam ritsun min amali shaytani fajdanibuhu la'allakum tuflihoun innama yuridu shaytano ayyuki abaynakum ul adawata wal baghdaa fi al khamri wal maysir wa yusuddakum an dhikri wa an assalah antum muntohoun Now, O believers, Why? gambling, while Ansab and the altars of sacrifice while Islam and the arrows of divination these are only ritsu and impurity shaitan of the work of shaitan therefore abstain from them in the hope that you may succeed shaitan only wishes. To cast hatred and enmity through alcohol, through wine and gambling, and to prevent you from the remembrance of Allah and prayer. So, will you desist? So, Allah mentions the arrows of divination alongside the altars of sacrifice to the gods. And wine and gambling as being a major evil and an abomination of the work, and an abomination and impurity of the work of Shaytan. So these were the arrows of divination. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala replaced all of these different methods with dua and istikhara for the Muslims. And we shouldn't make istikhara similar to the arrows of divination ourselves. Istikhara should not be misunderstood too. Istikhara is a dua. Istikhara does not mean consultation. Istikhara means طلب الخير. Or طلب الخير. Seeking the best option or seeking the blessing of Allah. And I've spoken about istikhara before and I will do so again. Inshallah it's one of those things which... I would like to speak on in some detail. But istikhara is commonly misunderstood. And the very method with which Allah replaced all manner of divination before. Unfortunately, we've reduced the same istikhara to the same methods of divination as before. It's subjected to the same abuse and exploitation and misunderstanding as the other methods were istikhara is not a consultation per se it's a dua in itself and if you look at the whole dua of istikhara not a single word of it says oh allah show me or guide me allahumma inni astakhiruka biilmik wa astaqdiruka biqudratik wa as'aluka min fadlikal azim fa inna taqdiru wa la وتعلم ولا اعلم وانت علام الغيوب اللهم ان كنت تعلم ان هذا الامر خير في ديني ومعاشي وعاقبه امري فقدره لي ويسره لي ثم لي فيه وان كنت تعلم ان هذا الامر شرني في ديني ومعاشي وعاقبه امري فاصرفه عني واصرفني عن واقدر لي الخير حيث كان ثم ارضني به سمح الله oh if you know sorry oh allah Verily, I seek your blessing through your knowledge, and I seek strength through your power, and I ask you of your immense bounty. For indeed, you have all power and I have no strength, and you know, and I do not know, and you are the great knower of all things of the unseen. Oh Allah! If you know that this matter is better for me in my religion, fidini, or my and in my life, livelihood, meaning referring to life on earth, wa the umri and in the consequence of my affair then are the words oh Allah show me, guide me. Show me a sign, show me a display, lead me to it. No. If you know that this is better for me, in my religion, in my livelihood, and in the ultimate consequence of my affair, فَقْدِرُهُ لي, Then decree it for me. وَيَسِّرُهُ لِي And make it easy for me. Enable it for me. ثُمَّ بَارِكْ لي في, And then bless it for me. That's all. And if you know that this affair is not is worse in my religion, in my livelihood and in the ultimate consequence of my affair, then, oh Allah, show me a sign, guide me, show me a dream, show me a sign. No. Fasrifhu anni then turn it away from divert it from me and divert me from it. وَقْدِلْ لِيَ الْخَيْرَ And then decree good for me wherever it may be, ثُمْ أَرْضِنِي And then make me content with it. So the very words of the dua show that istikhara is not so much a consultation. It's more seeking Allah's blessing. And the idea is that in any event, even in a small matter, what one should do istikhara in everything. Not just the major things such as marriage and divorce, but anything, most things. Because it's a form of dua itself. And it can be done with or without salah. So it doesn't have to be done with salah. Of course, the prescribed method is salah. But a number of sahaba, anhum, narrate this hadith of istikhara, and not all of them relate the salah with it too. More of them relate the du'a of istikhara without the salah. So it's just a form of a du'a itself. It's a special form of du'a. And the du'a is for Allah's blessing and for Allah to choose the better option. Istikhara can mean talabul khair or talabul khayrah. Seeking the blessing of Allah and good or seeking the better option. Both things are very similar. Either way, we entrust Allah to make that choice for us. And the idea behind istikhara is, as I've mentioned about all these other methods, as humans, we accept and we realize that there's only so much we can do with our knowledge, with our understanding and intelligence. And we come to a stage beyond which we are incapable. We are ignorant. And we have no knowledge of the unseen. When we reach that stage, we then entrust our affair to Allah. It's like, you can even do istikhara for buying a car, or buying a house, and or even renting a place. Imagine if you were to just rent a property for a year. One, should, one can and one should do istikhara. But the way that istikhara works is as follows. When you want to rent a place, you do all your homework, you check the paperwork, you make your inquiries, you check the prices, you look into everything in a purely human practical way. You've done all your homework, now you've reached your limits, you have limited knowledge You have limited experience, you have limited information, you are restricted for time. Within a restricted period of time, you have to make a very human decision on the basis of very limited knowledge and understanding. But this is as much as you can do. So you've done your homework. Now, just before you're about to sign the papers, you can do and should do istikhara. And the idea of istikhara is, it's like saying, oh Allah, I've done what I can. Is this really going to be good for me, better for me in my religion and in my life? And the ultimate consequence of my affair, I do not know, only you have that knowledge. So now I entrust the affair to you, oh Allah. I intend to go ahead with this. But oh Allah, if you know that it's better for me, then decree it, let it happen. And Allah, if you know that it's worse for me, then turn it away from me and turn me away from it. And give me a better alternative, and then make me happy and content with the better alternative. So it's like placing our faith and trust in Allah. And ultimately, istikhara is a dua. Like any other dua, there's no guarantee that it will be accepted. So we do istikhara in the hope that we will receive a sign. It's a consultation. So that means that the dua of istikhara apparently is guaranteed to be accepted. So if the dua is guaranteed to be accepted, why ask Allah, oh give me this or that. In fact in a hadith the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa says that ask Allah with azimah. Azimah means with determination. So do not say Allahumma in shit, rather say Allahumma Oh Allah, forgive me if you wish. Don't say that. The instruction of Rasulullah sallallahu wasallam is, ask Allah with azimah, with determination and resolve. Don't say, oh Allah, forgive me if you wish. Say, oh Allah, forgive me. Don't say to Allah, oh Allah, give me this if you wish. Say, oh Allah, give me this. Don't say to Allah, oh Allah, give me either this or either that, whatever you want. Say, oh Allah, I want this, give this to me. Ask Allah with azeemah. So if istikhara is a dua, which we know is going to be accepted, that's why we wait for a sign. So why, why go through the consultation procedure? If we know that the dua is going to be accepted, why not go straight for the thing itself and tell Allah, Oh Allah, I know this dua of istikhara is going to be accepted. So Allah, I'm not asking you to give me a sign, show me a dream. Oh Allah, I want this, make it happen. Either way, du'a, istikhara is a du'a, like any other du'a is subject to rejection or to acceptance. And even when it is, how do we know when the du'a will be accepted? Or if the thing, if it happens is actually a manifestation of the acceptance of Allah's du'a, we will always be none the wiser. This is why istikhara is not so much a consultation as it is a du'a of entrusting our to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I'll suffice with one thing and then I'll move on. P- normally everyone does istikhara for marriage and lots of people consult me regarding this and they say that a, a typical example is all oh, well, uh, our families, I've been dis- considering someone for a long time now and I like everything, the family's happy, I'm happy, she's happy, my whole family's happy, her whole family is happy. We told someone to do istikhara for us, and he woke up in the morning and he had a bad dream. So he's saying no. So what do we do? Or sometimes he himself says, last night I saw a bad dream. And this is what I saw in my dream. So I have a simple answer. I said, listen, you've done your homework. You've made all your inquiries. I said, you saw a dream. Do you know what the interpretation of the dream is? No. And I'm not telling you. So I have a simple answer. I say, go with what you know. Don't go with what you don't know. How can you dismiss and disregard everything over one dream? Dreams are subject to interpretation. And... The interpretations of the interpreters will be subjective as well. So go with what you know. This isn't istikhara. Istikhara is seeking the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's like when you go to one's parents. We've done all the homework. This is what I want. We seek your blessing. Obviously it's not in the same... At the same level, but in a far greater way, we do what we can as humans and then we entrust our affair to Allah. And we say to Allah, Allah, you decree the matter for me, not show me, as I've shown you with the words of the dua. So let us, istikhara came to replace all these false methods of divination and consultation with greater powers. And acting on them. And many of the methods are bizarre. They would release. The arrows would release a bird. And if the bird flew to the right. It meant yes. If it flew to the left. It meant no. They had arrows. Said yes and no. I take out an arrow. The arrows say yes. The arrows say no. And they would base all their decisions on that. And this is no different to what pagans all over the world would do. Chicken entrails. Animal intestines. Blood of the sacrifice on the altars. Organs. So, these were the azlām. So anyway, going back to the hadith. Surah Taqabun malik ibn says that I extended my hand to the quiver of my arrows and I pulled out my azlām, the arrows of divination. And I then said to myself... I then divined with these arrows, Should I harm the party or not? And although it's not mentioned in this narration, it's mentioned in other narrations that he did the same before he left. Before he mounted his horse and left his encampment, he pulled out the arrows. And he said, Shall I go after them or not? Shall I pursue them or not? So he took out the arrows. And what did the arrows say? No. The arrows said, it's mentioned in the hadith, the arrows said, no. So he said, I went with what I wanted and I disobeyed the arrows. (laughs) So I put the arrows back and I disobeyed them. This is what we do as well. It's almost like we seek an interpretation for the dream. Someone says, this is an interpretation, this isn't what I want now. So here again he pulled out the quiver the arrows from his quiver and divine through them, shall I continue pursuing them, Adurumlah? Should I harm them or not? So what does he say? Akra. So that answer emerged which I disliked. For so I mounted my horse again, Wa Saitul Azlam, and I disobeyed the arrows. bi. The horse was galloping with me. حَتَّى إِذَا سَمِعْتُ قِرَاءَةَ رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم, Until when I heard the recitation of the messenger of Allah. So as I said, he was looking ahead and calmly traveling, continuing to recite the Qur'an in a loud voice, never even glancing back. Abu Bakr siddiq radiyallahu anhu furtively glanced in all directions, scanning the horizon and he was weep for the sake of rasulullah sallallahu wasallam. he loved him so much as i said his character was molded in the character of the prophet sallallahu wasallam. and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enabled him to follow in the involuntary footsteps of the messenger sallallahu I gave some examples last week too His age The effects of the poison resurfacing Leading to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa passing away And the passing away of Abu Bakr as-siddiq There are many similarities Another similarity is That when they were in the cave <coughs> A sharp rock <coughs> gashed the finger of Abu Bakr siddiq radiallahu when they were in the cave with the Prophet sallallahu A sharp rock gashed the finger. It wasn't much; it was just a small uh, gash, but it bled. So Abu Bakr looked at the finger and, addressing his own finger, he said, "Hal anti illa isbuun are you but a finger that has bled? And all that you have encountered is in the way of Allah. Now it so happened that a number of years later, Jundub ibn Abdullah relates that he was with the Prophet. He relates that the Prophet was in a cave. Elsewhere, this is after the hijrah in Medina, near Medina. And his finger was cut. And he looked at his finger and addressed it saying, هَلْ أَنْتِ إِلَّا دَمِيْتِي وَفِي سَبِيلِ are you but a finger that has bled? And all that you have encountered is in the way of Allah. So Abu Bakr رضي الله he says, تقرب bi, galloping with me حتى إذا سمعت قراءة رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم until I heard the recitation of the Messenger of Allah. وَهُوَ لَا يَلْتَفِدْ And he would not even turn. وَأَبُوْ بَكْرٍ an Abu Bakr, يُكْثِرُ الْإِلْتِفَادِ He was excessively turning around. When that happened, when Abu Bakr رضي الله began weeping, and he told the Prophet wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, is, there is someone. And he says, I weep only for your sake. The Prophet said, La tahzan, do not grieve. Then, when Abu Bakr anhu told him again, Ya Rasulullah, is coming closer. The Prophet wasallam said, Pray to Allah. Oh Allah, suffice us in him, i.e. take care of him. So what happened, he says, when I heard his recitation, and he wasn't turning, and Abu Bakr was excessively turning backwards, yada farasi fil ard. Suddenly, the four legs of my horse became entrenched and trapped in the ground. حَتَّى بَلَغَتَ الرُّكْبَتَيْن Until all the way up to the knees of the forelegs, legs. And he was hard ground, he wasn't sand. It was hard ground. So imagine he's galloping at great speed. When all of a sudden, the forelegs of the horse became become trapped and dig into the ground and become entrenched. All the way up to the knees, not in sand, but on hard ground. Sudden break and abrupt halt as a result of which he was flung off his horse but these were Bedouin; they were expert riders. Thumazajaratuha, the heroes, and these Bedouin were remarkable. They could survive on dates, water, and camel's milk for many, many days on end. This is why, when the Persian Empire was about to be conquered, and in, towards when one of the final battles was about to take place at Qadisiyya, the great Persian general Rustam, he wrote a letter to Sa'd ibn Abi waqas and the commanders of the Muslim army, the generals, specifically Sa'd ibn Abi waqas radiyallahu It's a very long letter. And it was f- full of pompous language. Because the Persians, for, not just the Persians, the Sassanid Persians and the Byzantine Romans... And everyone else, they considered the Arab Arabs to be Bedouin, backward and extremely low. And they could not believe that they had the audacity and the impertinence to rise up in arms against the mighty Sasasanid-Persian Empire. So the letter was full of flowery, pompous, arrogant language and entirely dismissive. And he actually says in there, how can you Arabs, drinking camel's milk and eating lizards from the deserts, come and challenge our empire? The glory of the Sassanids with a thousand year history. So that's how they viewed the Arabs. But they were hardy. They were really hardy. They could survive on dates and water for many days on end. And that's what they would eat. Speaking of lizards, we covered the hadith in Bukhari where a lizard was presented to the Prophet and he didn't eat it. So the Sahaba said, Ya Rasulullah. Uh, what, ha- what happened is, he was, he was about to stretch his hand when a family member said, Inform the Prophet what is placed before him. And I mentioned then as well that. Part of the adab and the etiquette of food, or even of hosting someone, is that when you host someone, and this is part of the sunnah, you tell them what's before them. You actually inform them that this is this dish, this is what it's made of, this is this dish, this is what it consists of. That's actually part of the sunnah adab and etiquettes of food. So when the Prophet was told it was a lizard, he withdrew his hand. And then someone said, Ya Rasulullah, do you consider it forbidden? So he said, no, taqadhran, meaning I, uh, it's unpalatable. It was unpalatable to his palate. And he disliked it in a personal way. So Khalid ibn al-Walid, who was there, he gleefully grabbed it and devoured it. And I say this because Khalid ibn al-Walid was one of the greatest generals. And he worked wonders in in these areas. And he would travel with his uh, cavalry and darting across the Syrian, Jordanian, Iraqi, Arab desert and the Arabian Peninsula. And that's because they were very hardy and uh, subhanAllah lived a very rough life. And they lived rough, ate rough, slept rough, and at times spoke rough as well. These were the Arab. So, Surah Ibn Malik ibn Jurashim, imagine his horse came to an abrupt halt. He, he became entrapped and entrenched up to the knees, and he was flung off. All he did is got up and climbed on again. So, فَخَرَرْتُ So I fell off, Then I Prodded it فنحذت, So it rose It managed to pull its four legs out Or it, it rose from the back But it, it, it found great difficulty In pulling its four legs out He says فنحذت, So it rose tukhriju yadeha, But it couldn't manage to pull out its four legs qa'imatan. Finally when it rose And it stood upright on all four legs يديها, رثان, lo and behold, suddenly, because of the effects of the forelegs, there was dust. There was a dust and smoke cloud rising. السماء, a dust cloud rising towards the sky, mithlo like smoke. Imagine the it clouded the whole area. He couldn't see. So what did he do for بِالْأَزْلَامُ So I again divined by the arrows,. So that one came out, which I disliked. Then this time, he says in another hadith that I realized that this was the curse of that man. He said, "So many times I've fallen, and I'm unable to catch up with them." And he was an expert rider. So he said, I realized that this was the curse of that man. Remember, he wasn't a Muslim. bil man. So I called out to them for safety. Saying, uh, it's mentioned elsewhere, that I called out to them that, you have nothing to fear from me. Wait, you have nothing to fear from me. I am Surat ibn Malik ibn Jarsham from Bani Mudlij. And I wish to speak to you. So he says here for now, a so I called out to them for, with security, for security, for So they halted for Farasi, so I climbed my horse, Jittuhum until I came to them.. And it was cast in my heart when I experienced what I experienced of being prevented from reaching them. And that, سَيَظْهَرُ أَمْرَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ that the affair of the Messenger of Allah will become dominant and supreme. فَقُلْتُ لَهُ So I said to him, إِنَّ قَوْمَكَ قَدْ جَعْلُوا فِيكَ الدِّيَّةِ That your people have placed a bounty on you. وَأَخْبَرْتُهُمْ And I informed him, أَخْبَارَ مَا يُرِيدُ النَّاسُ بِهِمْ the news of what people intended for them. And I offered them provisions and goods for the journey. How did that happen? He didn't have much with him. In fact, he didn't have anything with him, his weapons and his horse. But what he did, it's explained elsewhere, not here. What he did is that he... Said to the Prophet وسلم, and Abu Bakr عنه, that, here, take my arrows. And that was a form of identification. So take my arrows. And when you will pass by this region and that region, there you will see much of my wealth, my herds and flocks of goats and sheep and camels. So take whatever you want. And use this for identification that Surah al Malik Ibn Jarshan has given this to you. Remember, he was the leader of his people. So he has given this to you. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said now. So وَعَرَدْتُ عَلَيْهِمُ الزَّادَ وَالْمَتَاعٍ And I offered them provisions and, uh, goods. فَلَمْ يَرْزَأَانِ but they did not take anything off me. فَلَمْ means فَلَمْ ينقصاني. They did not deprive me of anything. وَلَمْ yasalani, And nor did they ask me for anything else. إِلَّا an Except that the Prophet said, عنا, Meaning, conceal things from us. Hide things about us. فَسَأَلْتُهُ So I requested the Prophet أن لي كتابة, كتاب أمن, That he should write for me a document of security for amr ibn فُهَيْرَةَ so the prophet sallallahu instructed Amir ibn فُهَيْرَةَ the freeman of abu bakr as-siddiq رضي الله عنه kataba fi ruq'atin min adin so he wrote on a patch of leather of leather he wrote on a patch on a scroll of leather he wrote the security of rasulullah sallallahu that i Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the messenger of Allah, grants safety and security to Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jarsham. And he recorded that on a piece of leather. Amr ibn Fuhirah wrote it and they gave it to Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jarsham. He took it, rolled it up and he placed it in his quiver of arrows. Thumma madha rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. he says, then Allah's messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam carried on. With this, we come to the end of the second section, and the next section is about when the Prophet sallallahu eventually arrived in Medina on this occasion of the Hijrah. But here, this is a shorter narration. Uh, something, one or two other things happened too. One is that on the way, the Prophet sallallahu passed by the tents of Um Ma'bad anha. But um, maybe I'll speak about that next week. But here, relating to Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jushum, he, when the Prophet wasallam saw him, eventually he turned round, and Suraqat ibn Malik, when he met, the party halted, so they engaged in conversation. And he said, You have nothing to fear from me, allow me to approach you. Permission was granted, he approached. He said, I am Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Ju'ashim. Messengers came to us, they were dispatched by the Quraysh. They have placed a bounty on your heads and they have sent out search parties, but uh, I won't harm you. And then he says, Look here, here's my arrow. uh, Here are my arrows. Take them as a form of identity, and you will pass by these areas there. There are my camels and flocks and herds. So take whatever you want. Prophet sallallahu politely declined nor did they ask him for anything all the prophet sallallahu said to him is conceal our affair so he promised the prophet sallallahu that i will do so he also added that write documents document for me of protection so it was written now suraqah ibn malik bin was very wily uh, meaning he was a very thin well he wasn't heavily built in the tradition of the Bedouin. So, and he had very thin arms, but they were quite hairy as well. And when they were exposed, as he was talking to the Prophet Rasulullah said to him, looking at his arms, he said, O suraqah, كيف بك إذا لبست Kisra. How will you be when you shall wear the bangles? of Kisra on your arms. So Surah Malik said, Kisra? The Emperor of Persia? And the Prophet said, Yes, Kisra, the Emperor of Persia. How will you be when you shall wear the bangles of Kisra, the two bangles of Kisra on your forearms? Prophet sallallahu gave him that prophecy. Now imagine the scene. Rasulullah salatu is traveling with three people. His best friend Abu Bakr siddiq radiallahu anhu knows him better than anyone else is weeping, darting to and fro, fearful for his life. They are having to adopt a different route, a new secret route to Medina. Search parties are out for them. Here they have someone who'd set off as a bounty hunter to claim a hundred camels each for their lives. And to the same bounty hunter, on that occasion, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said, How will you be when you shall wear the bangles of Qisra? And later, five years later, on the occasion of Ghazwatul Khandak, when the Quraysh along with the Banu Ghatafan and various other tribes, they amassed a force of over 10,000 soldiers and they laid siege to the city of Medina. And under the, on the advice of Salman al-Farsi and the Prophet took a trench It was winter time, it was bitterly cold. They were hungry, starving. And they laid siege. The Quraysh and the Banu Ghatfan were on the other side of the trench. And the Muslims were guarding the uh, northeast of (coughs) Medina from behind the trench. It was bitterly cold. People were camped in their tents. They were starving, hungry. It was on that occasion that the Prophet showed the Sahaba عنهم, of having tied rocks to his stomach along with the Sahaba. They were fearful of the Quraysh and the Banu Ghattafan, which was the attacking force, crossing the trench at any time and even firing arrows. That's exactly how Sa'd ibn Mu'adh passed away. An arrow was fired and it hit his main artery in the arm. And eventually that's how he passed away. Sa'd ibn Mu'adh, the leader of the tribe of Aus, one of the first people to embrace Islam. And someone beloved to Rasulullah, a truly noble Sahabi. So they were fearful. And on that occasion, There was a boulder, and the boulder, they were unable to break up the boulder in the trench. So they informed Rasulullah wasallam, and he came, took the pickaxe, and he struck one blow on the boulder. And they saw a flash of light, and then a second blow, and then a third blow. And by that time, the whole boulder broke into pieces. They shouted Allahu Akbar on each occasion when part of it, when there was a flash of light and part of it broke off. Then the Prophet said, and I just mention it quickly and collectively, that in each of the three lights, Allah showed me the palaces of Persia and Rome. So the munafiqoon, the hypocrites who were present on that occasion, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul said, look at him. He said, and these are his words, out of fear, one of us is unable to go out to relieve himself for fear of being attacked. That's a state of fear, that's a height of danger. One of us is unable to go out to relieve himself out of fear. And here he speaks of conquering the palaces of Persia and Rome. But as for the believers, as Allah mentions in the Qur'an, it wasn't related to this, but in general, That, as for the, when the believers saw the hordes and the factions, they said, this is what Allah and His Messenger promised. And Allah and His Messenger spoke the truth. And this did not increase him in anything except faith and submission. And the munafiqun, they said, Allah and His Messenger have deceived us. So, Surat ibn Malik ibn Ju'ashim, he was told by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that how will you be when you wear the bangles of Qisrah? Subhanallah. Approximately 16 years after, 15-16 years after this conversation, indeed, the Muslims conquered and vanquished the mighty Persian armies. Despite their meager numbers, and despite the arrogance and the pompous nature of their generals, and the Muslims, these Bedouin, walked into those palaces full of opulence and splendor. In fact, before that, when one of the Sahaba, عنهم, they were invited to meet Rustam. So a delegation went. This was a mighty... He was actually a general and a commander, the overall commander of the forces and a general. But because of uh, palace politics... He was de facto the ruler behind the throne at that stage at least. So Rustam, when he summoned the Sahaba Rudiallah and the delegation, they went. Sahabi an walked uh, actually went into went in the tent with a horse. And then he dismounted. So they said to him, Well, oh, what are you doing? So he says, Look, we didn't come to you. You invited us, you called us. So if you want speakers, this is how we come. If you don't want speakers, we return. So the Sahabi, r.a. went in, similar to Suraqat ibn Malik ibn he dragged his spear along the cushions, along the cushions and the bedding, and all the opulence, ripping everything. <laughs> and then he arrived and he stood in front of Rustam, leaning on his spear, inclined to one side. And he's there in front of Rustam, surrounded by his guards, in the lion's den. And he's speaking so dominantly, so confidently, and so challengingly. And Rustam's making all kinds of office to him, and the Sahabi Allah anhu says, nothing. He refuses. And he says, these are our terms, you accept our terms or we fight with you. So after he left, Rustam, and I don't, uh, this is a point I wish to raise. Rustam said to his generals and his companions, he said, did you see that better He said, have you ever seen anyone more self-dignified, more self-respecting, more noble and honored and proud of himself than him? So, Sahaba anhum. Eventually, when they conquered, when they vanquished the enemies in the major battle of Qadisiyah, and a short while later, they entered the city of Madain, which was a capital where you had the huge white palaces of the Persian emperors. It didn't affect the Sahaba anhum at all. Nothing. When they collected the gear, the royal clothing of Gisla of Khosrow. His bangles, his crown, his royal sash, his royal robes, and his treasures. And this was sent to Amir al Umar ibn al-Khattab an, in Medina. The person who was tasked with the job of carrying this treasure... Obviously he was part of a group, the leader When he brought it to Amir al-Mu'mineen Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu an, He was overjoyed Not at the wealth But at the promise and the fulfillment of the promise Of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He said to him Who are you? Identify yourself The, sahah, the, the person said to him "O oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen He who needs to know Knows who I am He didn't identify himself and there was not a single item missing. It didn't affect them. Yeah. What did Amir al-Mu'mineen Umar ibn Khattab khattab anhu do? He summoned Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jarshim. Now what happened with Surakat ibn Malik ibn Jarshim After this incident, he went back to his people. And he would tell everybody what he had experienced. Abu Jahl... When he learned that Surah ibn Malik is telling everybody what he had experienced, he feared that this would lead people to embracing Islam. So he actually wrote a letter to Surah ibn Malik ibn Ju'ashram that stop telling people your story. So, but Surah ibn Malik ibn Ju'ashram, for some reason he didn't embrace Islam. And then in the 8th year of Hijrah, after the conquest of Mecca, as I explained in Kitab al-Hajj, in the commentary of Bukhari, when the Prophet sallallahu was in Ji'arana about to perform the Umrah set up from Ji'arana to perform the Umrah Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jarshim came to him with that letter and there he embraced Islam Eventually he on the occasion of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anh receiving these treasures he summoned Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jarshim, and when he summoned him He said to him, this is the crown and the royal robe and the clothing and the footwear and the belt and the royal sash and the golden bangles. These weren't just any golden bangles. These were those plates. These were the plates of the forearm that only only the emperor of Persia would wear. Nobody else would wear them. So he said, these are the bangles and the plates of Cosro. He said, wear them. So Saraq ibn Malik ibn Ju'ashim wore them. And when he wore them, Amir al muminin Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, and publicly he said to him, raise your arms, the same arms of which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, that how will you be? So he raised his arms. And Amir al muminin Umar radiallahu anhu said to him, say Allahu Akbar. So he said, Allahu Akbar. And then Amir al-Mu'mineen Umar ibn khattab anhu said, Alhamdulillah, all praise be to that Allah who removed the bangles from Kisra and gave them to wear To a Bedouin of the tribe of Bani Mudlij. <laughs> in fulfillment of the promise of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He didn't obviously he couldn't keep them, he he just made him wear them in order to display the truthfulness of the words of Rasulullah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then he was returned to the treasury. But that was Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jarshan. And what does it say of the faith and the promise of Rasulullah that he is in that condition and yet he makes prophecies and promises to the companions of what will happen much later. People would mock him. They mocked him in Mecca. They mocked him in Medina. But the very people who mocked him, their own wives, sons, and daughters, all played a role in the fulfillment of the same promise. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand وصلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آده وصحبه اجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد واللا إله إلا أنت استغفرك والأتوذي إليك This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com We can also be contacted by phone on 004444 121 771 or by email via sales at akstore.com Produced under licence by Alcotha Productions All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author Any unauthorised distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright